0: Father, we thank you that we do not have a hope that is built on a concept or a hope that is built in something temporary that fades and spoils, but our hope is established in heaven. Our hope is the living God who has defeated death itself. Our hope is grounded in in all eternity because of what you've accomplished already in history it is steadfast, it is sure but Lord I pray that while we can know that in our heads and we can speak it with our mouths i it's meant to change our lives and the thing we just sang was freedom, freedom, freedom that it only comes from you and so Lord I I just want to start off myself and just saying, Lord, I, I lay down the things bef- that keep me from fully living all that you have for me. I lay down my pride before you today. I, I lay down my selfishness. I lay down all the times that I want to be first instead of you. I lay down my hurt. I lay down the ways that I've been hurt. I lay down my bitterness. My wounds, my trauma, the days that I feel depressed and down, I lay that down. And instead, I'm yours, Lord. And God, I pray that as a church, we do just that. As we open our hearts and our lives to hear your word and knowing that you are the living God who is speaking and working and liberating and shame-breaking all around us so we invite you to come do what only you can do and we thank you for what you're already doing and what you promised in Jesus mighty name and everybody said amen amen you may have a seat have a seat but that doesn't mean worship's done right but we're just transitioning now into opening up God's word together in order to hear from him uh, and allow him to shift and change our hearts. You know, we've, a week and a half ago, began this season called Lent. If you've been in church for a long time, that's an old word to you. If you're new, like, what in the world does that mean? And see, Lent is a Latin word for lengthen because it's a period, it's a 40-day period in the church calendar where we are anticipating the remembering what Jesus did for us on Good Friday and celebrating what he did for us at Easter, rising from the dead. But it comes during a time of year when the days are lengthening, when winter is slowly becoming spring. I know I need an amen on that. Yes. And all of this is a special time of the year because we set apart intentional time and space to become more aware of God's presence with us all the time and his new life working in us all the time. And so one of the ways we're encouraging us as a church to prepare our hearts and minds is to dig into and meditate, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And we're calling this whole series Christ in You. Because in one shape, form, or fashion, that is the theme that Paul keeps coming back to over and over and over again. Is making sure we understand what it means that Christ is in you. And like I said, this is a letter. And the recipient of that letter from Paul, Paul's in prison, most likely in Rome. But the recipient of that letter was a new church community in this ancient city of Colossae. And God was changing lives there. Paul didn't know them personally, but he heard from his dear friend Epaphras that God was bearing amazing fruit, is the word he uses, in the midst of this community. One example, you know, Jesus says that the world will know that we belong to him by our love that we have for one another. What Paul says right from the beginning is, I thank God because I see your love in the spirit. It's evident that what God's doing is a work of him. And while their faith is genuine, it is new. So Paul is equally concerned, though, because he knows that the city of Colossae is not exactly an easy place to grow as a follower of Jesus. And if you remember, we talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to review anyway. Because in the midst of Colossian world, in that culture, there were really two sets of dominant voices that could cause this church to get distracted from the pure gospel of Jesus and start chasing other things instead, which could be dangerous and stunt their growth. And we remember last week, if you, if you were part of that, last week we laid out that the first voice was what we call the Greek voice. And the essence of their message was, ah, Jesus is not enough. Or, I'm sorry, Jesus is not unique. I've already gave up the second one. Jesus is not unique. Remember, Colossae is a very spiritual, religious place. And they had many persuasive, polished, professional personalities coming through that town with the hottest philosophies and and trying to gain more followers. And because they were gaining followers and they're just kind of chasing the newest fad, Jesus was starting to become yesterday's news. And he's really just another spiritual teacher. Who had great ideas. But he's one among many ways to the divine, so to speak. Does any of that sound familiar in our own culture? Yeah. He's not unique, was their their message. But then on the other side, we had the voices of the non-Christian Jews. You know, many of the early Christians were Jewish, and they would have grown up following many of the customs of the law and the traditions that had been handed down to them. And their understanding was that by following the law and the traditions and the religion, that this would ultimately prove to God that they were right with him and that they loved him, and therefore he would give favor to them. So, you believe in Jesus. He was a great rabbi. Good for you. However, Jesus can only do so much for you. You have to put your effort into Jesus plus religion is what ultimately makes you right with God. So, in essence, Jesus is not enough. But the thing is about each of these voices is they're dangerous. Because each of these sets of voices in their own way could cause them to move away from the pure gospel that that Jesus had given them. They would end up trading the very life of Jesus within them in order to chase after other spiritual fads or some sort of tradition. See, oftentimes the biggest threat to our faith is not the brash atheist who blasts Christianity. It's oftentimes those subtle voices that come in the back door saying, Ah, Jesus is great, but is he really that special? Or Jesus is great, but what have you done for him lately? But these very voices can be the ones that cause us to move away from the very power of God made available to us and compromise the pure gospel that God has given us. But Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've experienced that life of Jesus within me, and I, don't, I, I want nothing less for you. And do you know that's exactly what God wants for you too? He wants you to know his life, his shame-breaking resurrection power of Jesus within your life. But that only comes through the pure gospel. Only comes through Jesus. And so he's going to lay that out for us here. And what's interesting is that even with chains on his wrists, even though his body is bound, Paul is going to give us these words of life. And and the description he's going to give us is one one of the most glorious, stunning, theologically rich, soul-shaking descriptions of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. And then we find that right here in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 to 23. So turn there with me. If you have your own Bibles, turn there with me. You can also follow on the screen. But one thing I do want to make clear um, that as we're reading through this, don't just read to try to understand what Paul is saying. If you can, try to also hear how he would have said it. In other words, realize that a living person wrote this. These aren't just words on a page. But try to imagine the moment of worship and emotion that he must have felt as he was writing this. Sound good? You guys ready? All right. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's a lot. But Pray with me and then we'll dive in. Father, yeah, let me say that again. Father, open my heart, open my mind, transform my life. In Jesus' name. The name above every name. Amen. Now, if this was the first time that you read this passage, and you're feeling a bit blown back by the magnitude of it, that's actually okay. (laughs) All creation, all things preeminent, right? Like, if if you're not even sure what we just read, and, and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by it all, believe it or not, you're actually on track. Because the goal of this passage is not to present another philosophical idea for debate. The point that Paul is trying to do is evoke worship within us. Because he knows that Christ is like the radiance of the sun compared to the weak desk lamps of human religion and philosophy. And he's not trying to debate as if they're parallel. He's trying to exalt above everything. See... In response to all the voices that claim that Jesus was not unique, what does he say here? First, when we see Jesus, we see the true God and supreme Lord over all creation. If you want to know what first century worship songs might have been like, we actually just read one. Because verses 15 to 20 here are called a hymn. And whether Paul wrote it or somebody else, it was believed that most Christians in the first century would have sung or somehow prayed or proclaimed this exact statement that we just read. And again, that gets at the point. Paul is not bringing this up. He's not trying to debate the, all the voices as if they're parallel. He's saying, oh, I'm trying to evoke worship right from the get-go. And sometimes when we begin to get overwhelmed by all the voices in the world around us, that's the exact place we should start. It's worship. Worship. And as he begins to worship, he proclaims just who Jesus Christ is. And I want us to unpack that. Because these are theologically rich, dense, and so I need you to lean in and get a bit with me today. Because I don't want you to miss a piece of this. But first, in a society where the people worshipped many images and idols of other gods, Paul says, we worship the one and only image of the invisible God. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, let's pretend that God is hidden behind this well-illuminated wall here. All right, so we can't see him. He's back there. How would we see him? Well, if we placed a mirror at the right angle, right above this wall, we would catch a reflection of who he is. And we would see him clearly. And Paul is saying, this is who Jesus is. He's the visible reflection of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know what the living God is like, look at the person of Jesus. And you'll see it. For who he was and who he is is who our God is. And second, Paul says that Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. Now what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was born? Does that mean that there was a time somewhere in history past that Jesus wasn't? And this is what many Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons would claim to be true. But to make such a statement takes Paul's words dangerously out of their literary and historical context. Because within this passage alone, we see that after Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation, he says, and this is the same one who is before all things and all things come through him. So do you know what Paul's saying here? He's saying that Christ is the supreme creator as well. Therefore, he is co-equal with God. He always has been. But that's the literary context. He said, historically, though, you've got to understand what firstborn meant to the first century hearers. And the firstborn in any family was also the what? The main heir. And the heir was the one who ultimately received all things from the Father. And so what this is saying is not that Jesus was born, that, that he is the one To whom all things go, of all creation. And that's confirmed elsewhere in the New Testament. Places like Hebrews chapter 1 describes this reality and celebrates Christ as the heir of all things. You hear that? Heir, firstborn. Through whom also God created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or image of his nature. And so after Paul lays out he's the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. At this point, it's like he takes things out to this cosmic level. And and his hymn continues. He says, this Christ is also the one through whom and by whom all things are created. Not only on earth things you see, but across the invisible spiritual realms of heaven and every single power in between. You know, imagine if you were constructing a house. We have to get different people to fulfill the different roles from start to finish. We have architects, we have builders, we have maintenance, but all of that, different people. But do we realize when we look at the universe and we look at all creation, heaven and earth, Christ is everything. He is the first before him all things. He is preeminent, which means he ranks above it all. He is the middle. All things hold together in him. And he is the last. As the heir, the firstborn, all things were created for him. Theologian Abraham Kuyper exclaimed it this way. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And this means that if you want to know the meaning behind everything, start with Jesus. Start with Christ. Are you getting this? Because when this begins to sink into our hearts and minds, do we realize how all of a sudden the world and our perspective of what is going on in the world around us begins to change as well? Do we realize how everything, all the worries and the anxieties and the things that we wish we could control, we realize, oh my goodness, this is my God? This is my God. And see, the, the reason why he's laying out the primacy, or, the, or the, the preeminence, the word he uses, or the glory of Christ, is because it's supposed to blow our minds. In order to reveal how ridiculous it is to compare him to anyone or anything else. Try telling Paul, Jesus isn't unique. He's like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Because ultimately, he's he's saying, whoa, I realize, man, there's no one in the world ever like him. But Paul also realizes how ridiculous we have been. He has been. All human beings have been. Because as he says in Romans 1, all people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God to worship images resembling mortal man and other created things instead of the Creator. Come on, you know that's true. The ways that as human beings, instead of proclaiming, instead of Christ remaining first in our lives, we chase after celebra- celebrities, you know, leaders, stuff, money. But why in the world would we chase after things lesser than the Creator Himself? And the best answer I see in Scripture is because we actually want to be first instead of Him. You know, we were created, the first chapter of the Bible says we were created to image God. In other words, we weren't made to live for whatever I want. But we were made, it, made to really discover ourselves in humble, loving submission to what God wants for us. But even the word submission, for some people, goes, I don't know if I like that word to God. Because there's something in every human heart, including mine, that says, I, I'd rather be in control of my own life. Thank you. But imagine that you founded a company. And you were crazy enough to hire me to work for you. And within this role, I decided, you know what? I'm going to do my job as if this company were mine. I'm going to do my job in whatever way serves me instead of the company itself. You would say, oh, that's a gross injustice against you, the founder of that company. But yet, this is exactly how we've treated the founder of all things Colossians 121 says that we've become alienated and hostile in mind that as a society we've rejected Christ and placed ourselves on the throne instead or sometimes the way that we place ourselves on the throne is a bit more subtle And that we may not reject Christ, but we will pull him down and we'll place him on a buffet of all the different spiritual options and choices that we have. And we'll pick and choose what we want from him. In other words, instead of seeking to submit our lives to the one who formed us, we form a weak, tame version of Christ who serves us instead. Instead. That we decide we're going to make all of his creation here to ultimately gratify us. And this is really the dominant view in our society is that, well, you have your truth. I have my truth. As long as the truth doesn't make me come down from my throne. And as this begins to work itself out in society, it's not just an individual problem. It becomes a society-wide problem. And as Australian pastor Mark Sayers explains it, he said, as a society, we've got to a place where we want the kingdom, but without the king. We want his peace. We want his justice. We want his joy. We want his love, but we don't want him. We want everything except him. And but when we take everything except him, then as a society, we begin to exalt not him, but human nature. How great are we? And we begin to build monuments and achievements to ourselves, much like the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And we talk about justice, and we talk about peace, and we talk about love, but it's all disconnected from the very one who knows what all those things are. And as a result of that, we end up with a counterfeit kingdom, not the real one. But anytime human beings seek to promote a kingdom in a society that is detached from the king, we end up building a society, but it's based on hidden sin. It's based on violence. It's based on injustice. And it's based on some perversion of truth. Because it's ultimately based on us. But there is only one Lord over all things. Therefore, there is only one just response to give him and that's to step down off my throne and worship him with all I am but when I look at this if you feel a bit sobered well so do I because I think oh my goodness how many times have I fallen short and failed to give God what he rightfully deserves how many times have I placed myself and my needs and what I want first over what he wants for my life? How many times have I committed injustice against him? And what is he going to do about it? How is it, what is that going to mean for me? And here is what is radical about Christianity. Here's what is radical. About the gospel itself. The good news of Jesus. That when we see Jesus. We see the supreme Lord. Who became the sufficient sacrifice. This is now getting at the point. The main point of Paul's hymn. Because you see, part 1, which is verses 15 to 17, lays out who Christ is. Part 2, verses 18 to 20, lay out his response to the world. Part 1 is the glory of Christ. Part 2, Christ took on flesh. Part 1 is Christ the creator. Part 2, Christ of the new creation. And all of this is meant to put together to show that only the supreme lord over all things part 1 could become the sufficient sacrifice for all sin part 2. I want you to just see some of these parallels that I, I they're all intentionally placed in here. We see that only within the image of the invisible God with the fullness of God dwell. Only the firstborn of all creation would be the firstborn of the dead. Only the creator of all things would be the one who would reconcile all things to him. All things were created for him, and he is the one who would reconcile all things to him. All things hold together in him, and he is the head of the body who holds all things together in the church. You tracking with me so far? Come on, somebody, just just, just go like this, all right? I know I'm throwing a lot at you, so I need your brain power, but I need your heart open too. I don't just need your brain, I need your heart And as we open this up, do we realize this is the scandal of the gospel. That the Supreme Lord became our sacrifice. Anytime you and I see injustice done in this world, our gut level reaction is somebody's got to pay for that. But what about when the injustice is uh, ours? And we committed it. Well, throughout the Old Testament, God taught his people Israel He said, I'm going to atone for sin, but here's how you're going to do it. You're going to take a priest who is a mediator between God and heaven, and he is going to sacrifice an animal and take the blood of that animal, the blood symbolized life, and he's going to offer that as an atonement for your sin. And as 21st century hearers, we're like, that's gross, that's morbid. And yeah, you're right, so is sin. And as he offers that up to God, the Old Testament system all along was meant to foreshadow Christ. Because Christ would come and he would come as the priest. The God-man, mediator between us and God. But he would not just come as the priest. The priest would become the sacrifice too. That although we've wronged him, that Christ submitted his own body to be stripped and tortured as our sacrifice. And Another question has been, well, what does that matter? Like, he died. Why does that have anything to do with me? And, and you're right. Like, if, if I died for you, <laughs> I'm sorry, it wouldn't do much. Right? It, it wouldn't do much. Because I have my own sin to pay for. But when the spotless Lord over all creation gives his life, his sacrifice reverberates down across creation as an invitation to believe and receive his payment for our sin. And when he, though he died, he went down into the grave. And though he, the, the, the enemy of God thought that he had won, he broke through that grave making a new way, robbing death and sin of its power and breaking open a new way of life for all who would believe and follow him. And folks, this is what I want you to get. If Christ is the image of the invisible God, do we not see that the God of all things loves you this much? That he is a God of self-giving love. Love. And this is the great news of the gospel. That his sacrifice. And his resurrection is enough. Everybody say enough. But sometimes, as, even as Christians, we assume something less than. We assume, you know, Jesus died for me, so I'm forgiven. Which kind of gets me in the door with God. But after that, i gotta, like, I got I to gotta keep going. i got to keep working in order to get the real favor of God. Now, for example, Roman Catholicism, it's often taught that, well, Jesus died to save you from hell, but depending on how you live after that determines whether you end up in tier one, heaven, or tier two, purgatory. But man, purgatory is nowhere in the Bible, nowhere, and this theology, though, even more importantly, assumes that Jesus needs our good works to fully seal the deal. But he's enough. And it's even taught in Protestant churches like ours and others, at times, unintentionally, that yeah, Jesus forgives you, but as long as you obey certain rules, as long as you, you keep being a good little boy or girl, or as long as you chase after certain experiences... Well that determines whether or not you're a tier 1 Christian or not. And we all of this though is moving away from the pure gospel of Jesus that he is enough. And it's a necessary human striving for something that has already been won in Christ. But I notice that when we move away from the pure gospel, anytime Christians move away from the pure gospel, we become a, a culture marked more by guilt than gratitude, more by comparison than love, more by pride than grace. But if you want to know if we've truly grounded ourselves in the gospel, then you're going to see the gratitude, the love, and the grace of God alive and working through this community. And the encouraging thing to me is I see it, which is evidence to me of the ways that God has borne this church, this community within his grace, within his gospel. But, man, it's something that we have to remind ourselves of daily. Not because we have to earn it, but because I forget it. The voices of the culture make me think that it's not enough. But Paul announces, you were once alienated, but he is now reconciled, past tense, in his body of flesh. Jesus' own words when he died, it is finished. The Supreme Lord became the sufficient sacrifice. And all of this means that for, for all who hope in Jesus, that he has begun a new creation work in you. The the supreme creator has begun a new creation in you. That in his death and resurrection, he has brought about a new humanity rooted in him called the church. Called the church. And Paul says, now you're starting to get the point of all this. Because it was never meant to be about religion. It was ultimately meant to be about a relationship with your creator, which is exactly what the word reconciliation means. But he did all of this, he says, so that he may eventually present you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That Christ did not save you so that he can make your life as smooth and easy and happy as possible. He says that I'm doing this that I might work out my very nature within you. But note, he did not say he saved you so that you may work out his nature in you. That he may present you holy and blameless. Okay, so what's my job then, Jesus? <laughs> Paul says, our role is to cling to him through all seasons as he does his work in us. Verse 23, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the pure gospel that you heard. This means the best question you can ask yourself today is not, am I perfect? But who or what do I trust? Who or what do I trust? I've spent so much energy trying to change myself. I've spent so much time condemning myself because I'm not measuring up. I'm not doing enough. But Jesus says, that was never your job. Your job is to come to me. You come to me even when you're weary, you're worried, and you're over, overburdened and overwhelmed, and I will give you rest. Then, when you feel like the, the, the troubles and the voices of this world are too loud, lift up your eyes and worship. When the shame from your sin makes you want to isolate, come back to my love. And as a matter of fact, realize you've got a community around you that loves you too. When you want to quit and give up, take one more step, trusting that His strength will meet you there. For the same Christ who redeemed us with his body is the same one who holds all things together. So our role is to keep walking the way of the cross saying not yours, not my will, but yours as we step off of our throne and discover his life within us. Because as we decrease, what is the promise? He increases. He increases. So rest in this. The one supreme Lord over all creation became the one sufficient sacrifice for all sin so all who hope in him may be one with him for all time. Let me leave you with this. Right after Christmas, my family and I decided to get our first pet. A kitten named Zoe. My wife and kids love this cat they love this cat but as a kitten this cat is feisty and she plays with her claws out most of the time so at least once a day the cat scales my leg with its claws or bites my foot and I don't always have kind words for it but like I said the rest of my family loves this cat especially my six-year-old daughter Hadley and one day, I noticed on Hadley's face was a scratch going right down, right down her cheek. And then I looked at her arms, and she had nicks all across her arms. And I said, babe, like, is this from the cat? Yes. Well, baby, like, notice when she's feisty, just leave her alone. But after I said that, I realized she already knew that. She already knew to leave the cat alone if she, but like, because she loved the cat so much that she was incapable of leaving it alone, even when it gashed up her arms. And it hit me a couple of days ago as I was thinking about it. I was like, that's a picture of God's love for us, <laughs> that He is incapable of leaving us alone. No matter how hostile in mind we were, doing evil deeds, he was incapable of just leaving us that way because his love for us consistently propelled him toward us. That even when the centurions were gashing the back of Jesus, he did not say, I'm, I'm, I'm done. He kept pressing forward because he was incapable of not loving us. Love was everything that he was. And in him we see that this is who our supreme creator is. A God of everlasting love. And if he's the supreme creator, guess what? He doesn't need us. But he chose us. He doesn't wait for us to earn our way to him. He came to us. And the question that just hit me after all of this was right from Romans chapter 8. That if he, God, did not spare his own son, but if he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you realize that his resurrection power is already in you? Do you realize that he already sees you and he loves you and he's already provided for you even though you may not see it yet? Do you realize that this God who gave everything for you, if he's willing to give everything, he's not going to stop short of something he knows you need. He's the God of all things. And this is our God. And last week, I encouraged you guys as as an application of last week's sermon to go through Colossians 1 and write down who you are in Christ. This week, I encourage you, pick out that same piece of paper, go through Colossians 1 and write down who Christ is. And as you write it, write it slowly. Pause. Pray. And allow that just become a moment of worship between you and God. The one supreme Lord Over all creation, became the one sufficient sacrifice for all sin, so all who hope in Him may be one with Him for all time. Church, let's stand up and pray. Lord, we get to celebrate this for all time. (laughs) We get to celebrate this for all time. But Lord, I I just want to say, after a message like this, if there's anyone in here, God, who's burdened with guilt, I pray that you will wash them in your grace. If there's anyone in here who's so busy comparing themselves or trying to live up to some standard in their own strength, God, I pray that you will show them the love of Christ and they will encounter the love that that, that accepts them and loves them and then then works through them. God, I also pray that if there's anyone in here who, man, they're struggling with pride and seeing themselves or placing themselves in that first seat, Lord, that you give us the grace to step down from our thrones and to then surrender and submit all of ourselves to you, knowing that, as Jesus said, that all who belong to him, his goal is that they would experience his fullness of joy. Not just now, for all eternity. We love you. We praise you, and we pray that you allow this by your spirit to sink into our hearts and our minds and transform who we are. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen.